Hosts of shows on KCNR are those of the hosts, guests, and callers only, and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of KCNR Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Dr. Patricia Bay, and you are tuning in to Therapy in a Nutshell here on KCNR 96.5 FM, 1460 AM, your talk radio. This is Dr. Patty, and we're going to be talking about a very difficult subject today, especially if this is something that you or someone you love is going through. This is a subject of emotional abuse, and the colloquial term that is used for this is gaslighting. So we hear this phrase thrown around a lot these days, oh, he's gaslighting her, or or, don't gaslight me, or things like that. And it's interesting in the field of psychology, uh, people throw around the the word narcissist a lot, and um, they throw around different types of abuse, and they throw around gaslighting. So I not only want to tell you what gaslighting is, just so you know, but I also want to tell you if help you recognize if you are experiencing this. With any luck, people who do this kind of behavior will also stay tuned to this show, not turn it off, and find out if this is you. So let's talk about exactly what gaslighting is. Um, The term comes from a long time ago. There was a play in 1938 called Gaslight in England. And then later in 1944, a movie was created, and it starred starred Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman. And in this movie, the husband systematically tries to show that his wife is crazy. And one of the ways he did it was, this is back in the days when there was gas lighting in houses, he would go up to the attic and he'd turn the gas down so that the lights would dim. And she would say, oh, the lights are dimming. And he'd say, no, they're not. So he'd make her doubt her own perception of what was happening. And then he went through a whole bunch of other series of uh, systematic kind of emotional abuse things with her. But that's where the term gaslighting came from. It is a purposeful attempt to make someone doubt themselves, feel controlled, and let the other person feel superior. So the What the person who's gaslighting does, the abuser does, is tries to have psychological or emotional power in the relationship. They want to have power, and they want to be able to call the shots in the relationship. Often, the person who is emotionally abusing or physically abusing has extremely low self-esteem. And what's interesting is this low self-esteem is often masked. The person can uh, be super self-inflated with their intelligence or their ability to solve problems or some ability they have, like mechanical ability, or uh, they're super, they have a really good memory, or they do something that makes them stand out. And they'll have a a very inflated sense of self-esteem on the outside. But inside, what they're trying to do is prove to the world and prove specifically to their partner that they are magnificent and that the partner is less than. And the underlying fear is that if you see my faults and you see that I am actually insecure, you will reject me, you won't love me, you'll abandon me, and you'll leave. So the underlying attempt at gaslighting and emotional abuse is to keep control in the relationship so as not to be abandoned. 
Now, somebody listening to this who's super arrogant, who says she's just an idiot, it's not me, will tell you, uh, that's not it. No, that's not it at all. But from a psychological viewpoint, why would somebody try to overpower others to prove that they're more intelligent and they have all the answers? It's because they're not secure enough for someone else to have an opinion or someone else to step up. So this emotional abuse that happens is the vine for power, and in that it denies or alters their partner's perception of reality. Now, many times during this show, I'm going to talk about the abuser as a he, but I want to clarify right now that that is not always the case. Uh, Society-wise, men are trained from a very young age, to push down their feelings, to be powerful, to have control, to step up. And so it's more likely that a man will take on these characteristics than a woman. But it is not unheard of for men to be in relationships where someone else is emotionally abusing them. So keep in mind, even though I use those pronouns he and she, that it can be other things. So as this abuser is trying to make their partner doubt their sanity, they would begin to do a whole bunch of things that you might recognize in this show. They are trying to have a superior, arrogant attitude. They often seem very narcissistic, like it's all about them. They have, they're special. They have all the answers. But in this, they are using kind of a toxic, dehumanizing pattern of emotional abuse. It's repetitive. It happens over and over again. And the people that are abused can often know exactly what the person's going to say. If they make a mistake, if they're late, if they burn the grilled cheese sandwich, if they do anything that could be deemed as wrong or incompetent, they know exactly what type of things their abuser is going to say because the person says it over and over and over again. So one of the ways that the abuser begins to gain control besides making you doubt your sanity you begin to doubt your self-esteem and whether you are really stupid or you are, you do have a bad memory or you're not as talented or you make stupid mistakes. Besides doing that to bring you down, the other way they tend to have power over the person they're abusing is they will wield financial power. This could be a boss. This, this does not necessarily have to be a spouse. This could be a boss or a co-worker who has the power to fire you or end your income. And another way is physical power. This might be the person abusing might be a caregiver of disabled or elderly people, a person who has your freedom, your financial stability, and your mental health in their hands. The other way that they put power over the victim is the victim tends to crave the abuser's approval. So what they'll do is they will start to seek their approval. And then what happens is, and this is a a complicated part of it, but the person being abused can tend to internalize what's happening to them, the emotional abuse. They can start to take on the voice of their abuser. So they might be saying things like, God, I'm stupid, or I can't remember anything, or what's wrong with me? Oh, Some of that reminds me of the proverbial fat person making a fat joke before someone else in the room can look at them and think they're fat. The abused person who internalizes the abuse will start to say the things first before the abuser can say it. In that way, they feel like they're going to get approval for seeing how stupid they are, the mistake that they made, or 
whatever happened, and then the abuser hopefully won't pick on them. But the underlying thing that they're trying to do, too, is join with the abuser for approval. So in this show today, I not only want to tell you what gaslighting is, I want to give you examples of it. I want to talk to you about what happens to children in the home when there's this kind of emotional abuse. I want to talk to you about some ways to look at what can you do about this. And this is extremely complicated. I want to tell you, in my 34 years of private practice, I have seen many people who are getting emotionally abused. And many of them are professionals with educations and good jobs. And from the outside, their family looks lovely. You know, they've got 2.3 kids, and they've got a nice house, and everything's going well. But they're in my office crying and upset and talking about the butthead that they live with and how they want out, but they're afraid to leave. And often afraid to leave because they don't want to leave their children. They don't want to share their children with somebody who has personality characteristics like that. And gaslighters are also very adept at creating a scenario that says, if you leave, I will do this. And it's scary. And it's hard. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you. I want to give you some examples of gaslighting. I'm going to actually read you some things, typical things that gaslighters will say. So get your pen and paper out and be ready to take some notes. Be back in a minute. Welcome back to Therapy in a Nutshell. You're listening to Randy McGinnis play Native American flute. It's beautiful. Go to randymcginnis.com and check out his music. He's got six CDs. They're all different. They're all beautiful. All right. We're going to get right back to it. We're talking about gaslighting, which is basically a colloquial term for emotional abuse. Um, And I want to give you some examples. Before I go into some of the typical spousal ones, I want to talk about a couple of examples that happen that are not spousal. If you have a very, very controlling boss who wants to get his or her way, uh, for example, um, when I was in college, I had a boss who was constantly sexually harassing me. And he made it really clear, where else are you going to find a job that lets you off at 4 o'clock to go to your college classes? Um, He manipulated me knowing that if I lost my job, I would lose my ability to pay for my tuition and books, and I was kind of barely squeaking by and putting myself through school. So I, it was a very manipulative way of trying to keep control over somebody. Um, another example of that is sometimes when people are the caregiver for an elderly parent or a disabled person, they will tell a person how much of a burden they are, how horrible they are, if they're lucky that they're being taken care of, and they will sometimes utilize that to financially rob them or abuse them financially, they might use that as a way of trying to get their way and get the person to be quiet and not ask for anything. Another example is with social media and how complicated it is right now. I recently had an example of somebody I know who was gaslighted in a political manner on Facebook. They were told they were stupid, they weren't um, reading everything they should read, that they were listening to the wrong news network, uh, and they were chastised for their political beliefs. And when the person tried to fight back and said, don't talk to me like that, that's abusive, you're gaslighting me, you're, you're saying things that are just trying to make you feel more powerful, the person who is a professional 
actually debunk that and up the abuse and up the emotional trauma. It made the person, the other person just get off Facebook and say, this is ridiculous. Um, Facebook can be very difficult at times. So uh, gaslighting politically is also something that's happening in this day and age and happening a lot right now. So that's just kind of some side notes of how gaslighting can happen. But I want to talk to you a little bit about how gaslighting can happen in relationships. These can be in same-sex relationships. They, these can be the women being this way. But generally, predominantly, we find men who are striving for power. And one of the reasons they are is because boys are raised to not be a, a particularly emotional, not to state how they're feeling. They're considered soft or weak if they're saying, I didn't like that or that hurts my feelings. And we train little boys like that from the time they're very small. You know, you're being a crybaby, cut it out, don't do that. Um, they, they make boys realize that people are watching their behavior and judging whether they are strong enough. So that's some of the beginnings of what happens for male partners to begin to try and vie for control in a relationship. But something that happens is gaslighting happens often in response to what a person does. So say a woman in a relationship is trying to get more get closer emotionally and so she's asking for more heart to heart talks or for a deeper commitment or I want us to have time together um, or I need to know what you're feeling about that they get ridiculed and put down for those kind of behaviors and told that they're just being an emotional stupid woman things like that and they are shamed for their need for emotional intimacy sometimes when a person stands up for him or herself the other person is going to try to put them back down. They'll make the make. Let's say her at this point, making her the butt of jokes. Um, not not calling if you're going to be late because the abuser wants to have control. Um, getting upset when the person says no to sex. Um, the abuser never apologizing for hurtful actions. Um, thinking that intimate touch that. You know, non-sexual intimate touch is stupid and a waste of time. So when the woman starts talking like she needs that and starts asking for what she needs, she's criticized or told that she's being ridiculous. Um, Abusers will often start to demand the type of behavior that they want. Uh, For example, they will demand that who you can talk to and who you can't talk to and how long it takes you to get home from work and what you buy at the grocery store and accountability for your time. And then a lot of critical things happening about how long it took you or how stupid you were that you forgot that or you should have gotten this instead of that. Um, Sometimes a wife will ask their husband uh, to stop doing things like stop texting with an ex or stop correcting her in front of others or to show respect or interest in her opinions. And to not do the thing I call the head whippy thing, looking at every beautiful woman that walks by and staring at their chest and things like that that are just really disrespectful to the person you're with. And they will be put down and told they're stupid and that's ridiculous and you can't make me do things like that. So the other thing is sometimes women will ask for help with their day, help with the kids, help with bath time, help with driving to lessons, and they're often told that's not their job or you have enough time on your hands or what are you doing all day. Um, And so they get told that they're not 
productive enough, efficient enough, and that they are screwing up somehow. So these are some typical things that a gaslighter might say to their person they're trying to have control over. You're too sensitive. Listen to yourself. You're losing it. You are so childish. Here you go without a rational thought process again. I'm not arguing. I'm trying to talk sense into you. You are crazy. You're out of your mind. Are you sure you're not bipolar? You must, you're mentally ill. You're mentally ill just like your fill-in-the-blank. You're acting just like your mother, father, sister, somebody that the person wants to put down and disrespect. Everybody knows how controlling you are. Stop trying to control me. My job is more important. You just do busy work. I don't answer to your beck and call, and I don't answer your texts or your calls because they're stupid and irrelevant and they just ramble on. So I'm late. Get over it. You're always making things up. This is not true. I'm not trying to control you. You're just taking it out on me. That's what your ex, for what your ex did to you. Those are some real typical statements that an abuser will say to try and put you down and control you. And we go back to that thing where the abused person begins to internalize the abuse. And they start to, basically, it's like they play the recording. I often see this in my private practice where people will play the recording of their mother or their father or someone in their life who has been extremely degrading. So we take this abuser and he becomes the recording in your voice. And pretty soon you don't even need him to tell you you're stupid. You're telling yourself you're stupid. You're doubting your intelligence. You're doubting your ability to make a decision or do anything. And that disempowerment really gets in your way of trying to find a way for this to stop. The other thing, and I hear this all the time, and I have for 34 years, it's worse when I try to stop it. When I try to leave or try to ask for what I need or I try to point out the dysfunctional behavior in the relationship, he ups the ante. He makes it worse. It's better if I stay silent. It's better if I just shut up and take it. It's easier on the kids if I do that. And the person gets beaten down more and more and more. Look at the vicious cycle of that. The more the abuser abuses and the more the victim internalizes it, internalizes that abuse and begins to believe that it's true, the less power there is to leave. So, and by the last part of the show, I really want to give you coping tools for how you can look at ways to deal with this. And I am not saying that it's easy. This is complicated. It's hard. It can be dangerous. Um, just because someone's an emotionally abusive person does not mean they won't turn physical. And one of the things I really like victims to watch for is when that ice gets broken, that emotional abuse begins to turn physical. There's pushing and shoving. There's just kind of a slap upside the head. There's uh, too hard of a punch in the arm or a slap on the rear that's hurtful. And then they go, oh, I was just joking. Oh, come on. Can't I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt so hard. I just was joking around. But when that ice begins to get broken, that the power begins to turn physical. That is certainly possible in emotional abuse. And occasionally there'll be people that never turn emotional abuse physical. And that's a line that they draw for themselves that's saying they'll never do that. But they, they still have the potential there. So if you are in a relationship situation where it's been emotionally abusive for a long time 
and it started to turn physical with some shoving or some pushing or some slapping or some forced sex or some abusive kind of things. Like, for example, one guy who was a gaslighter and totally emotionally abusive of his wife would joke around and throw cold water on her. Like they'd be out in the garden and all of a sudden he'd turn the hose on her and he'd laugh and think it was just hysterical and funny. And if she didn't laugh, then she didn't have a sense of humor and something was wrong with her. But he took great pleasure in doing little things that were harmful to her that he could then call a joke. And then it wasn't long after that that he began to do things like pinch her, punch her in the arm. Uh, He'd pop her upside the head where he wasn't really punching her or slapping her, but he was crossing the line into physical abuse. So if you are in an abusive relationship, whether it's extremely emotionally abusive or it's emotionally and physically abusive or just physically abusive, you need to go get help immediately. And one way you can do that, like here in Northern California, we have One Safe Place, which is for victims of domestic violence. You can go to a women's shelter. You can go to domestic violence shelter. And they're trying to make domestic violence shelters uh, with non-sexual language now so that One Safe Place is for anybody that's getting emotionally or physically abused. It's not just women getting in domestic violence situations. So if you are unsafe, grab up the kids, and go for help. All right, we're going to go to break. And when we come back, I want to talk to you about how this affects children living in homes where gaslighting occurs. And then in the last section of the show, I want to give you some very clear coping skills. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Therapy in a Nutshell. This is Dr. Patty. And we're talking about gaslighting, which is actually emotional abuse. And this is emotional abuse where the perpetrator is seeking power in the relationship and wants the power and control. And is often perceived that they will get the power and control by making the victim of their attention doubt themselves and think they're crazy. And that's where the gaslighting comes in. So let's talk about what does this do to children in the homes where gaslighting is occurring. And this is the most difficult situation. In my 34 years of private practice, I have seen many, many people who are in these subtly domestic violence sort of situations. It would almost be easier if they had broken bones and black eyes and the the perpetrator could be accused of a crime. But emotional abuse is subtle and it is often covert, so it's under the table. It's almost always done where nobody else hears it or sees it. Although family members and friends will have a sense that your person who's emotionally abusing you is an asshole or he's um, really abusive in terms of his language or he puts you down a lot or he's constantly criticizing you in front of other people and then looking at them like they're supposed to agree that your hair looks ugly or that you've gained weight or that you're fat or those jeans look stupid on you or, or just because somebody has an education doesn't mean they're more intelligent than somebody who doesn't have an education. Isn't that right, Joe? You know, things like that. So sometimes the gaslighter will be known to family and friends because they will be doing it subtly. But almost always, they save the really big stuff for private. And so the person who stands up and says, I'm being emotionally abused, is fearful of being doubted, that 
nothing's going to happen, that there's nothing that can happen because they can't prove it. Okay, so how does this affect the children that are in the home? Because the thing I have heard over and over again for people that are married to abusers like this is that I can't leave because of the kids. And often this is where the manipulation comes in. For example, if you leave, I will cut off all financial support to you. I will keep our kids. I will make sure you don't get custody. Or I will disappear with our children and you will never see them again. I've heard that one before too. Or something to the effect of, I have video of you. I have pictures of you. I have proof that you're insane. I have uh, documentation that I would show to the court that you are an unfit mother and you will never get your kids. Uh, I had one guy who would say to his wife when she would talk about leaving, I'll keep the kids, you'll never get them, and I will cut off all financial support. I'll go so far as to quit my job so that you don't get any support from me, and you have to work, and you'll have to pay me alimony and child support because I'll be a stay-at-home dad, and I'll be there with the kids, and you'll have to support me. And he would use threats like that. And this, uh, the one person I'm thinking of with this is a professional, and she knew that that could possibly happen and that he could put, quit his lower-paying job than hers, and she would end up having to pay him alimony or child support. So here's the issue that happens with kids in the home. Many, many abused women will tell you, he's like that to me, but he's such a good dad. I wish I had a dollar for every time I've heard that. And so I want you to think about that. The reason I'm pausing there for a moment is I want you to think about that. One of the reasons that an abuser is a good dad to their children is a boundary issue. Many abusers have no idea where they end and their child begins. They see their child as an extension of them. And they may even say things to the person they're abusing. I don't want you to teach our kid to be like you. You're crazy. I hope our kid doesn't have your genes and ends up with the mental illness you have. Um, we're lucky that our kid's more like me and not like you. They might say things like that, which are all indications of the lack of boundaries. Where do I end as a, say, as a dad? And where does my son or my daughter begin? And are they different from me? And are they allowed to be different from me? Can an insecure person be okay if their child is different from them? So now let's, let's push that on further. Can an insecure, abusive person be okay if their child surpasses them? Let's say their child is more athletic or better in football or smarter or more sensitive and caring. Are people like the child more? Are the child more comfortable out in public and not so insecure about being around people and a reclusive sort of um, introvert? Can that abuser be okay with that child forever if the child surpasses them? It's a real problem because eventually... That child is going to want to do, in psycholingo that we call it, separate and individuate. Separation and individuation is a normal process for children growing up. It is normal for a two-year-old not to need to cling to mommy anymore and to go off exploring. It's normal for an eight-year-old to be a little bit hesitant at things but then step into it and be better at it. It's very normal for a 15-year-old boy to look at dad and say, I can take you or I'm stronger than you, or you're not going to 
hit me with that belt any longer. It's normal for a young man to begin to stand up and look his father in the eye and say, I am equal to you. How is an abuser going to take that? Right now, while the children are little and the abuser feels that he's molding them into what he needs them to be and he sees them as a reflection of himself and the, and the potential for perfection and almost to get the person that they're emotionally abusing who they see as inadequate out of that child. So what happens if the day comes when the abuser finally sees that that child is an individual? The gaslighting is going to turn on the child because it is not unusual for a gaslighting husband to begin to yell at his gaslighting 15-year-old, you're exactly like your mother. You are crazy like her. You are bipolar. You are stupid. You have no memory. You are exactly like your mother. And the child's going to hate the dad. And then what happens when you hate the abuser? The power and control is upped, and it isn't pretty. It isn't pretty at all. So the moms out there who are saying, he's such a good dad, and he's never going to do this to the children. I hate to burst your bubble, but that day is coming. And you're modeling for your kids. It's easier to shut up and take it and let him do what he's going to do and not make waves and not battle and just agree with him and even start to be the person who says, oh, I'm so stupid. I have such a terrible memory. I'm, I burned the, the meal again. Uh, I forgot that at the grocery store. Saying it before he can say it. You're modeling for your children how to behave with an abuser because it is dangerous and difficult to stand up and be strong. So you're modeling, shut up, take it, stay, don't say anything, and acquiesce which means just roll over and let it happen because you feel like the abuse is less. So what's the alternative? When you try, so many times I've heard people in abusive relationships and these subtly emotionally abusive relationships where they say, how can I leave? Because to the world, to outside, he's a good dad. You know, he shows up at kindergarten with our our daughter and the teacher loves him. He's loving and he's funny and he always brings her stuff in and he's attentive and he listens to the teacher and he agrees with her on what needs to be done. The teachers love him and our neighbors think he's a great dad and our friends say, wow, he's so good with her and things like that. And they don't see the subtle underlying abuse. So then they project that out and say, if I leave him and I file for custody of our kids, he's going to get. 50% custody. And here's one thing you need to recognize. When abusers tell you, you are crazy and you're not going to get custody and I'm going to tell them how crazy you are, I want to tell you that the courts are used to that. It will get sent to mediation. You will have a voice to talk about what happens in your home and you will be able to let them know. If you get some help from your attorney or a therapist or somebody who knows how to handle the divorce process and mediation, they can help you Stay calm and present your case in a, in a good way that lets it be seen that you're not crazy, you're not stupid, you're not mentally ill, and that at the very least you will get 50% custody of your children. Okay, so let's go there for a minute. It really, really scares victims of emotional abuse that they leave the kids at all. These are people that often won't leave their husbands to quote-unquote babysit their own children 
because they know what can happen. They know his attitude. They know his short temper and how frustrated and irritable he gets when something doesn't go right. So they don't ask for help, and they do bath time by themselves, and they do all the driving by themselves. And even when they're exhausted or sick and have a flu or something like that, they don't ask for help because they don't want to irritate the touchy, emotional, abusive, mean person in the house. So here's Dr. Patty saying, consider leaving and getting a divorce and sharing your children with this guy 50% of the time. And you don't even want to leave him for an afternoon or for a weekend or overnight. Well, you're probably not allowed to go away for a weekend because that would be frivolous and stupid. Can you imagine saying to an emotionally abusive husband, I want to go for a yoga weekend with the girls? It'll be a waste of money. He'll do your chores. Be a waste of time. You're selfish. What are the kids going to do without you? There's not going to be, hey, sure, babe, you need a break. That doesn't really happen in emotionally abusive relationships. Although many of those same people will not hesitate to go out and spend a whole ton of money on their hobbies or what they want to spend money on, but they will control every cent that their spouse spends. So I want you to recognize that this pattern of behavior is modeled for your children. And the modeling is shut up, let it happen. It's easier if you don't make waves. Don't fight back. Just tell him he's right. And there's often this subtle little conspiracy of, for example, mom running around going, okay, your dad's going to be home in a minute. So um, everybody get your toys picked up and come on, let's let's get this done. He's going to be home in a minute. Come on, you know what he's going to do if you don't have everything done. That would be really typical of the short-tempered, frustrated, angry, over-the-top controlling person is about to show up and you're scrambling the children around to be part of the team with mom so that The emotionally abusive person doesn't have any fuel for their verbal weapon. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'm going to give you some tools to begin to look at how you can make this different. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to Therapy in a Nutshell. I want you to get your pen, pad of paper, and I want you to write these five steps down. We're talking about gaslighting, emotional abuse in relationships. And knowing what to do and how to get out is really, really difficult sometimes. So when anybody's telling you just do this or just leave or tell them off, I want you to recognize that it is not always safe to do that. And you may need more help than you're getting. You may need free help from like uh, One Safe Place or domestic violence places. Uh, You may need help from a hotline online. Therapy would be great with someone who can help you with this. Um, A legal consultation. And the money is often controlled, so getting a legal consultation isn't easy. And if you're caught squirreling away, 10 bucks here, 10 bucks there, until you get enough money to get a legal consultation, maybe give that money to somebody off-site to hold, like your mom or your family member or somebody who's going to keep it and keep it quiet until you can afford a legal consultation. So what do you do? 
When you have to make important change, there are five steps to change. And I want you to write these down. The first step to change is that you have to suffer. And I don't mean to be trite about this. You might have been suffering with emotional abuse way longer than you have known that you were. You might be listening to this show right now and be going, oh, she's talking about me. And your awareness of your suffering might be growing right here, right now. But you have to suffer. So those of you in emotionally abusive relationships, you've been suffering. And if anybody wants to tell you you're not, they don't know what they're talking about. So step two is awareness. These are the two most important steps. Something has to be wrong, the suffering. And then you have to create awareness of the suffering. So write down number one, suffer. Number two, awareness. So this is the most important step. You need to sit down with yourself or with a friend or with a therapist, and you need to really create the awareness of the emotional abuse that's happening to you. You need to build your awareness about what this is doing to your children and what this is doing to the atmosphere in the house. Also, what this is doing to your self-esteem, your peace of mind, your hope for the future. Are you getting depressed and anxious and hopeless and lost? Do at times you think you just wish you could die? That suicidal ideation? I did a show not too long ago called Suicidal Ideation, A Call to Consciousness. Listen to that show. If this is taking you down so far that you just want out of this earthly plane, Listen to that show, Suicidal Ideation, The Call to Consciousness. But you're building your awareness about what you're going through. Listen to this show all over again until you really get it. Start researching it. Reach out for help. Once you have really built your awareness of what's happening and how destructive it is to you and your children, or even just you, and that's okay, then you have decisions to make. So step three should say decisions. You base your decisions on your awarenesses of your suffering. So your decision is maybe to leave. All right. Is it, can you? How do you do that? If you have no children, it's easier to pick up and go. It's easier to pack a bag, get in the car, drive off, whatever. But if you have children, that gets more complicated. So, You make a decision to research what you need to do. You get a legal consultation. You go to the domestic violence place. You talk to them about what are your options. You maybe get into some therapy. And you start to research, how do I get stronger? And how do I lay a foundation for being okay when I leave? And what's going to happen to my kids if I do that legally? So let's say you're decision is, yes, I'm in an abusive situation, but I I like people to do this kind of, tell me, is it 50-50? Is he 50% an asshole and 50% decent? Or is it 90-10? Is he 90% an asshole and 10% decent? And what happens over time is sometimes in the beginning, they're wonderful, and then they slowly start abusing, and you become like the frog in the hot water. That fable that says if you keep a frog in water and slowly turn up the water, the frog will stay in until it dies, even when the water's boiling. You throw a frog into boiling water and it'll jump back out. So are you the frog in the water that has slowly been turned up? He was wonderful, charming, and great in the beginning, like many narcissists are. And 
over time has become more and more abusive, and I've become less and less confident in myself. So right now, what's your percentage? Is it 50-50? Is it 80% he's an asshole and 20% he's good or vice versa? He's 80% good and 20% he's bad, like when he drinks too much or when he's frustrated or when he's tired and hungry and work too hard. Um, Define it. This is where you're going to really increase your awareness. And then sometimes what the decision is, is I will stay in this marriage if he's willing to get help. If he's not willing to get help, then I have to get out. And then you start laying the groundwork of getting your legal consultation and getting emotional support to bolster your self-esteem and to see this from outside you and so you're not so immersed in it. So step one, you have to suffer. Step two is awareness of your suffering and really defining it. And then three is what are your decisions? If you just stop at number two, Okay, Dr. Patty, now I'm aware that I'm in a nasty, emotionally abusive relationship. Thanks so much for letting me know what I'm in. It was easier when I didn't know. Okay? If you stop at awareness and you do not go forward to make any decisions, you are choosing to stay. And you might say, I'm not choosing to stay. I just can't leave. If you don't go forward with trying to find out your options, you are choosing to stay because you think it's the easier choice. Okay, so once you have really looked at your decisions to stay, to go, to research what would happen if you went, then you have to take action. So step number four is action. What am I going to do? I need to get a legal consultation. Well, I don't have any money. Is there free legal help in your community? Is there someone who can loan you the money? Can you go to one safe place or the local domestic violence people and say, I need a legal consultation. Can you help me? They may have attorneys on staff. They may have people that help you with that legal process. So what action are you going to take? All right. Define it. Get some help. Get into some therapy. Um, Research how you're going to move forward and what you're going to do if he chooses to not get help. And I need to tell you, people that are emotionally abusive are often very frightened of getting help because they are frightened of being called less than or being seen as the problem. Uh, They often have issues that made them this way from their childhood or how they were raised. And they will avoid getting help because they instinctively know, if I go to therapy with my wife, Eventually, that therapist is going to look at me and tell me I'm an asshole. And I don't want that to happen. I want the therapist to see that it's all her. They will try to gaslight the therapist. You know, she she acts just like her, fill in the blank, who was emotionally abusive, just like her uh, relative who was mentally ill. You know, her aunt was in mental institutions. They'll pull up something from the family history to prove to the therapist that she's the problem. And they can be very glib and very slick in doing so. Okay, so you have to take some action. Step number five is change. So let's go over those steps to change again. You have to suffer. That's number one. You have to have awareness of your suffering. You have to make a decision on what to do with those awarenesses. Then you have to take some action. You actually have to show up at one safe place. Or you have to call an attorney for a consultation. Or you have to ask somebody to borrow the money for a consultation with someone that can give you legal advice. Or you have to get in some therapy. 
um, that you can afford. I have people that call me all the time that need to get into therapy, and they might not be able to afford to see me, but I can help them find someone who takes their insurance or there's uh, programs available, or I can send them to a place of resources. So start calling. Call your local mental health. Then you will create step five, the change. So the thing I'm asking you to do is to... Look and see if you have taken on the voice of your abuser. Have you internalized this abuse? And you are now part of the problem because your self-esteem has dropped so low and it has seemed easier for you to parrot what that person says. And you've got to look at the patterns in your life. Is this familiar? Does this sound like how your critical parent was or how uh, an ex that you had was very demeaning and made you feel horrible and then cheated on you and left and you just feel like garbage. Is this a pattern that people tell you you are unworthy and now you believe it? All right. The other thing to do when you're looking at your awarenesses of the abuse that you're suffering is what are you afraid of? What will happen if I leave? What will happen to me financially? To my children, what will happen to the joint assets that we have? He tells me he's going to keep the house or he's going to, he'll take all the money from the bank account or he won't give me any support or he'll quit his job and make me pay support or, um, you know, I, I, I'll leave and I'll work, but I won't be able to afford daycare and there's no way I'm leaving the kids with him. What are your fears that are keeping you there? Another one is lifestyle change. Do you want to go be a single mom with a couple of kids uh, living in a tiny apartment and he keeps the house or you have to fight him for the house? Or even if you sell the house, you don't have enough equity in it, so you're back to living in an apartment like you did in college or a long time ago. What's going to happen to your lifestyle? Also, another really highly motivating factor for people is what's going to happen to your reputation? And often abusers will threaten you. I'll tell the whole community that you are crazy. I'll tell your whole family what you did that day when you said you were going to kill yourself. I'll tell the world that you aren't worthy of your profession, whatever your profession is. So take a look at the things the abuser has done to create leverage. The people he's told to get on his side, the pictures, the videos, the financial things that he has maybe slicked, um, you know, put into his own name, how he has tried to systematically get control of you financially, emotionally, physically, and take a look at all those things because those are the things you're going to need to address when you make a decision to take some action. Now, look, I know that this is a really difficult subject, and some of you right now are listening to this and freaking out, and you're hurting, and you're scared. Get some help, you guys. Call One Safe Place. Call your domestic abuse local helplines. Reach out. Get some help. I wish I had an easy solution for you, but know that you're not alone. There are many, many people out there suffering with this, and Many, pe- many people have escaped and have left. All right. This is Dr. Patty, and you are listening to Therapy in a Nutshell. And it's my deepest desire to help heal the world one hour at a time.
The news from Town Hall is brought to you on KCNR Shasta Reading by Shasta Regional Medical Center. Your life, your health, your choice. Shasta Regional Medical Center.